I really don't think that the animal cracker qualifies as a cracker. Why? Well, because it's sweet, which to me suggests cookie, and, you know, maybe putting cheese on something is sort of the defining characteristic of what makes a cracker a cracker. I don't know why I thought of that. I just... Baby, you have such sweet pillow top. I got, like, a little animal cracker Discovery Channel thing happening right here. <laughs> Watch the gazelle as he grazes through the open planks. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that tries to stop a mass made up of the pop culture of the 80s and 90s from hurtling into the earth and ending life as we know it. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to just want to feel the power between his legs, brother. I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to have an outgassing that creates a vent a half mile wide and at least two miles deep. (laughs) And I'm Becky. I'm the podcast host most likely to break up with a guy if he tried to seduce me with animal crackers. (laughs) Aren't they more like animal cookies, though? I don't want to get into this debate. (laughs) Seth, I was very much hoping that you would pick something gaseous about a comet. So thank you for fulfilling my Well, I usually try to, but now it actually fits the theme of the episode. (laughs) Get all the Truman. Prepare the world for bad news. So this summer on the podcast, we are flashing back to summer movies from 20, 25, and 30 years ago. In our last episode, we talked about the summer of 1993, when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. And in this episode, we're talking about the things that killed them. Who could forget the summer of 1998, when we had both a comet and an asteroid on a collision course with Earth, just a couple of months apart? That was scary times, wasn't it? It's a bad year for the Earth. Yeah. They've been pretty much all bad years for the Earth ever (laughs) since, though. Like, about 1996. I was wondering what the good years were going to be. 1999 felt good. (laughs) The movie about people just looking up at the sky as a comet passes by from a safe distance. (laughs) Yeah. But I feel like that, that especially, that, like, memorable shot of people looking up at hurtling fire <laughs> was a theme through many mid to late 90s movies. Just a lot of cinema had that shot. Yeah, nowadays it's all the stuff on the ground now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, no, that's That true. people are staring in shock and awe at. <laughs> <laughs> like our government. <laughs> So, yes, we are talking about disaster movies again. This is the third and final entry in our 90s disaster movie trilogy. Dear God, please let it be the last. (laughs) Because we have run out of natural disasters. What were the other ones we did? I can't even remember. Well, I'll tell you. In our very first episode, we talked about Twister. Oh, okay. And the tornadoes therein. We liked Twister. Can we refresh? Yes, we all liked Twister. Go watch Twister. Cows. Paxton. Hunt. Aunt Meg. Do not leave out Aunt Meg. (laughs) Don't leave out Aunt Meg. That's Twister. And then in episode 33, we talked about the twin volcano movies, Dante's Peak and Volcano, that were released just a few months apart of each other in 1997. What a blast. We love those movies, right? Too soon. We had mixed opinions on those films, I would say. (laughs) I didn't like either of them. (laughs) Yeah, they were a mix of shit. (laughs) But my opinion was mixed. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. The disaster du jour of 1998 was comets slash asteroids placing the entire Earth in jeopardy in Deep Impact and Armageddon. Besides the summer of those two giant space balls heading towards Earth, (laughs) it was also the summer that Brandy and Monica's The Boy Is Mine spent 13 weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, which is amongst the top 10 like longest runs ever. Seinfeld was wrapping up its run on TV, and the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal was dominating the news. 
So there's a phenomenon called twin films, which is two films on very similar subjects being released in the same year. And there are twin twin films with disaster movies because in 1997 and 1998, they both had twin disaster movies. So it's like a weird like quintuplet thing. That's five, right? It's a weird <laughs> quadruplet thing. <laughs> Quadrilogy. <laughs> yeah. Because it was Volcano and Dante's Peak in 97 with volcanoes. Yes. And then 98, Armageddon and Deep Impact. Yes. So one of the reasons that twin films exist is because one studio might greenlight a movie about, say, a volcano. It's not a sure thing that that movie is going to be made. But the other studios, now that they know that that subject matter is something that another studio thinks audiences want to see, then they'll have a script about a volcano and they'll greenlight that to try to beat them to the theaters. Because usually the theory is if you're first to the theaters, you know, people will go see your movie and they'll be tired of that subject matter by the time the second movie comes comes around all the same inputs are there for everyone like whatever is like kind of happening in pop culture is affecting people even if it's not like a direct reference like people are still being affected by the same like news events and whatever's trendy so it's definitely possible for multiple people to have similar ideas in the same time frame and also humans tend to share a lot of the same fears and anxieties so it kind of makes sense that something like natural disasters are things that come up pretty often within our storytelling because that's part of how we deal with our anxieties is making stories about these things yeah and in the last disaster movie episode we talked about how environmentalism was becoming more of a thing in the public consciousness and that's why we started seeing those movies in the 90s and so yeah I think that these movies don't really have anything to do with environmentalism but I think that they were probably taking on something else that was in the general air at the time. I think you're hitting right on it in terms of the kind of growing awareness of things like climate change leading to anxieties about not necessarily quote-unquote mother nature but just the chaotic nature of the universe and there were movies like day after tomorrow later on that were specifically geared toward like mother nature becoming this vengeful god figure but i think these comet movies in large part are kind of inspired by that like fear of the chaotic nature of the universe and all the things that we don't understand totally posing a risk to our way of life so if you go online you can find like a whole list of twin films but just some that you might remember are like Ants and a Bug's Life came out the same year. The same year as Deep Impact and Armageddon, too. Um, There was the two (laughs) Snow White movies that came out the same year, Snow White and the Huntsman, and was it just Mirror Mirror? Mm Mm-hmm. The Illusionist and The Prestige, the two two magician movies. Mm -hmm. What else was there? Like Going back further, in 1973, there was Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh. In recent years, there was the HBO movie The Girl that was about the filming of The Birds uh, the same year that Hitchcock with Anthony Hopkins, which was about the filming of Psycho. In 1987 and 1988, there were four movies about youngsters reversing roles with older men. (laughs) Weird. Like Father Like Son, Vice Versa, 18 Again, and Big. Big is obviously the biggest of these because it's the only one you really remember. That's weird that, like, man-boy switching was a genre, <laughs> a subgenre. What was happening year? with, like, Reagan Seriously? or whoever during that time that inspired that? Well, but that's... <laughs> it was because there was a five-year-old in his body <laughs> running the country. <laughs> Mentally speaking. <laughs> that's not far off. Yeah. It was actually Reagan's son had switched, by, <laughs> switched minds with Reagan. It was too fresh a wound at the time for us to deal with it in a literal sense, so we had to go metaphorical. 
There was also Turner and Hooch and K9 in 1989 about Love police officers who get paired up with a dog for a partner, as often <laughs> happens in real life. <laughs> There were two Wyatt Earp movies back-to-back in 93 and 94. Tombstone being one of them. Yes, thank you. And the other one being Earp to Earp. <laughs> <laughs> and two pig movies in 1995, Babe and the Lesser Beloved Gordy. <laughs> I believe it's officially referred to as the Lesser Beloved Gordy now. <laughs> if, if you buy a DVD of it. So this happens a lot, and it's never going to end. There will always be <laughs> twin films coming out. Uh, one movie that's listed as twin films is The Double and Enemy from 2013, which are both about people confronting a double of themselves. That's true. <laughs> I remember those. Honestly, it continues to this very day. Yes. It's getting very meta out there. There's also <laughs> twin Lincoln movies, one of which is about a vampire hunter, the other which is just about Lincoln. Like you might hear in the news too, like they'll be competing and like one of them will, you know, just not make it to theaters. So then the other one will just continue and you won't even know that it it at some point was going to be a twin movie. Yeah. They're often betting that one of the movies will die. And it usually does. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. So did you guys see Ants and a Bug's Life in theaters? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I did see both Ants and a Bug's Life in theaters and I enjoyed both. What podcast are we doing? <laughs> I don't know. I just decided to mix it up. I saw them both in theaters as well. And I also enjoyed them both. Well, yes, we were like little kids. <laughs> of course, we saw them in theaters. Now, what about Deep Impact and Armageddon? <laughs> I did not see either Deep Impact or Armageddon until preparing for this podcast. And it's interesting that you brought up the twin movies phenomenon because I think that was a part of why I avoided watching these movies at the time. I know I mentioned this back when we talked about Dante's Peak and Volcano, that I noticed like it was just a couple months apart in these movies that seem kind of in a general sense, but also in terms of the marketing, almost conceptually identical movies, if not just the same movie repeated over and over again. Even at that age and even at that time that kind of turned me off to the idea of seeing either one of them. I didn't see any of these movies when they came out. And in terms of the later movies that you mentioned, I would usually see only one of them in theaters and either catch the other one on video or kind of avoid it altogether. So I saw Deep Impact on a camp field trip. It was not my choice. Wait, the field trip was not your choice or just watching the movie? Yes, to all of the above. When you're at camp, they pull you out of camp, and they're like, go see this movie. You you don't have a choice. And I wasn't really, like, into those movies, but I went, and I have never cried more in my life at a movie than Deep Impact when I was 14 years old. Oh, my God. I sobbed. Sobbed. Wow. I, re- I think the next time I cried that much in a movie theater was the first 10 minutes of Up when I saw it with my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's how much I was sobbing at Deep Impact when I'm 14 years old. I remember the scenes. It was the scene when Lily Sobieski like, has the baby and they're, I mean, we'll get into this later, and like her, her parents are like, take the baby, go to safety, and the scene with Taya Leone on the beach with her dad. I just remember like being shocked at how emotional I got. It's amazing how cinema can have such a deep impact on us. <laughs> <laughs> and too I, deep. I, too soon, I too I think deep. that I saw it either again in movie theaters or when it was on DVD, and I and I saw I remember I sobbed again. 
I can't believe how emotional I got at deep impact. And I remember telling that story to people over the years because I couldn't believe that because I was not a person who cried really at movies. Do you have any idea of why that particular movie got to you? Like, it sounds like both of those were like related to like family drama. No, I, I mean, I'm like, playing I'm, the therapist like right I'm now. Thinking, <laughs> Seriously, you are on the couch. <laughs> no, but like, I'm thinking of like when I cried at Up the first 10 minutes and I was very emotional. Also family drama. <laughs> well, no, I cried at, well, that is honestly like a beautiful prologue anyway, mm-hmm. but I was seeing it with my ex. That was the first like movie we saw together trying to be friends. And I remember crying so much and trying to like hide it. And I was like, do I need to leave the movie theater? So obviously that was tied into something that was emotionally going on in my life, but not deep impact. <laughs> Like, there was nothing that got me because, like, oh, I'm dealing with this in my life. It was completely out of the blue. Hmm. I have Hmm. no idea. So I remember really liking that movie. I maybe owned it on VHS. I don't remember. And that came out, like, in the beginning of the summer. Later that summer, we actually did have a choice if we wanted to leave camp to go see a movie to go see Armageddon. And I was like, well, I already saw my Comet movie of the summer. <laughs> like, I don't need to go see Armageddon. And then, I like, there's nothing about the trailers. Like, because usually I'm not into those movies. So I was like, I don't want to see Armageddon. Like, at the time, I thought it kind of looked dumb based on just what I saw. Like, it didn't seem like a movie that I would be into. Even though, obviously, like, that worked for Deep Impact. But I was like, I don't really care. And then I probably saw Armageddon on DVD at some point, but I cannot remember. Like, I know that I watched it at some point. I just Mm -hmm. don't remember when that was. Sorry, that story just is, like, (laughs) choking me up a little bit. (laughs) Thinking of poor 14-year-old Becky, just... (laughs) Like, were other people reacting to you from, like camp no i think some other people in the theater it was mostly campers that were in that movie theater they probably rented out the theater i think other people were emotional during the sad emotional scenes of that movie but i just remember myself sobbing that's true i mean it wasn't an emotional movie it wasn't a bug's life or something that you were just like (laughs) sobbing through yeah i remember people were like affected by what they saw how about you chris as people who have listened to this podcast before know i am a big fan of disaster movies i saw both of these in theaters and i owned them both on VHS and watched them several times. But I also, like, kind of owned every action movie on VHS (laughs) and watched all of them several times. And so unlike Twister and Dante's Peak, I didn't really develop an especial attachment to these movies. I liked them enough to pop them in whenever, but, like, they weren't movies that I connected to on any, like, real emotional level. Except... (laughs) I was gonna say this later, but the first movie I ever cried in was Armageddon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, this episode has already been full of delights. Can you get the Kleenex up? I'm going to cry all over the couch. What scene of, like, is it the Ben Affleck and no. Bruce Willis scene at the end? No. Okay. <laughs> was it the Aerosmith music video for Don't Want to Miss a Thing? I did cry at that, but it was <laughs> a different reason. <laughs> did someone kick you in the crotch while you were watching the movie? <laughs> I broke my arm while watching this movie. <laughs> Like you, I was not someone who cried at movies. In fact, like, I would see, like, my mom cry at a movie and I'd be like, like, what is that? Like, especially, like, happy things in movies. I never, like, got, like, why you would cry at something happy. And then at the end of this movie, the little boy runs out to the dad who just saved the world. And, like, I just, like, got a little, like, stingy You in weren't my eyes. sobbing. I was not sobbing. You had, like, a solitary tear. Yes. Okay. But it was the first time that that had ever happened to me. And I was, like, shocked. Because I even knew at the time that this was not, like, a deep movie. Like, this is a popcorn movie that's, like, very 
manipulative. And I even, I knew that at the time. And I was embarrassed <laughs> that I was crying at oh. Armageddon. Nevertheless, that is my memory of the first time <laughs> of ever crying at something happy or crying in a movie in general. Well, that was going to be my follow-up, Chris. Is like, do you ever remember crying at something sad, like Bambi or something like that? I don't remember crying. I think I cried, like, when I was really young at things that scared me. I don't okay. remember crying at anything sad before that. Because I remember, like, crying at many Disney movies, like Dumbo, when Dumbo's mom sings about, like, missing her baby. I baby remember mine. crying. Yeah, Baby Mine. Oh, my God. I remember, like, so crying cry. for Bambi. I think I wouldn't cry when I was little watching those because just I emotionally didn't have the capability to, like, really understand the stakes in those movies. I wonder why I felt connected with that kind of fear so early on. I mean, I've always been, like, a very emotionally intuitive person in the sense of being really sensitive to other people's emotional emotional states so maybe that was part of it but i don't know why because i remember like being really really young and doing that Hmm. i mean like four and five yeah that's strange i mean i was always like a sensitive and emotional child too and in my personal life i would like cry at things if they bothered me but i don't think that i ever did at movies that i can recall and like even after armageddon i don't think i cried at any movie until like much later i didn't cry at like (laughs) titanic or something like that like i find it sad but i wouldn't actually cry and I think it's really funny that we're <laughs> having the talk about what movies made us cry in this episode. <laughs> that was not planned. <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't seen either of these movies since starting college, probably. So they were both like back in the 90s or very, very early 2000s. Michael Bay's reputation had me kind of prepared for what to expect for Armageddon. And Deep Impact, I had no idea really, except that I probably wasn't going to like be blown away by either of these movies just because like none of them particularly blew me away as a kid. So the origins of these films start 4.5 billion years ago. I just wanted to clear the air a little bit before we begin and let you know the difference between an asteroid and a comet. Oh, thank you. Oh, God, thank you. If you do not know. Honestly, that was like the one thing I was hoping for from this episode. So Deep Impact is about a comet. Comets are made up of ice, dust, and rocky material. Okay, okay. We have some stuff in common then. Armageddon is about an asteroid, which is made up of metals and rocky material. Can you go over the difference between an alligator and a crocodile next? (laughs) One has (laughs) no movies with Dundee after. One wants to see you later, and the other wants to see you after a while. (laughs) You're not familiar with the Swedish hit movie Alligator Dundee? (laughs) So I did some research on asteroids slash comets coming close to the Earth and discovered that in 2018, there have been 33 asteroids passing within a lunar distance, which is the distance from the Earth to the moon. So this is actually a pretty common thing that happens. Obviously, they're definitely not as big as the one in Armageddon, but some of them are like substantially large that could actually like have a really bad impact if they actually did collide with the Earth. But they would have to be really big because once they enter our atmosphere, don't they like kind of break apart? So it would have to start really big. They do if they're like a certain size, but if it's like even a mile wide or something, like that's like pretty devastating. So, mm-hmm. and like one of them, like in just in April, like NASA found it like a few hours before before it passed Earth. They don't really have a very good system Hmm. for watching out for this. Yeah, and there's been talk for decades of setting up just such a system, but it's so difficult to get funding for NASA 
in any political climate, much less the current one. I've found one of the most unbelievable things about both of these movies to be the proposition that NASA would be fully funded. <laughs> Actually, they make a joke about that in Armageddon, and he says, they're like, why didn't you see this coming sooner? And he's like, yeah, we only have the budget to watch like 3% of this guy. Yeah. One of the things that might have contributed to the twin movies, these ones in particular, is that comet Shoemaker-Levy collided with Jupiter in 1994. That's the comet that was named after Joel Schumacher and Eugene Levy? I believe so. Uh-huh. Okay. Totally. <laughs> they both discovered it together, so... <laughs> Why were they together? <laughs> Why wouldn't they be? That's, that's a story them. for another day. <laughs> that's between the two of them, Chris. That's none of our business. And so that was a look at what happens when a large mass collides with a different planet, which luckily was not Earth. So that will take us into our comet movie, Deep Impact. Hello, America. It is my unhappy duty to report to you that the Messiah has failed. This computer-enhanced radar image from Houston shows how the detonation succeeded, however, did not destroy the comet. There are now two pieces, one six miles wide, the other a mile and a half. Both are still on the path towards Earth. Directed by Mimi Leader. She was born in New York City, but raised in Los Angeles in a Jewish home. She was the first woman accepted to the AFI Conservatory. She worked in TV, earning four Emmy nominations for China Beach and later winning two Emmys for ER. Her first film was The Peacemaker, which was released in 1987 and was widely publicized as the first film from DreamWorks. Yeah, I remember that. George Clooney, Nicole Kidman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So interesting that their first film was directed by a woman. That was a rare thing in the 90s. Still is, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, still very rare. When I was looking at the IMDb for Deep Impact, I was like, oh, Mimi Leader. And I don't know really any of her work, but I remembered her name. It was probably because she was a female director. And And because she made you sob like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) There's so few back then. So I knew all of their names because there were like five. Yeah, exactly. She went on to direct Pay It Forward, which was another semi-notable film from the era, and now is working on a movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, and also she is behind The Leftovers. Yeah, she was a big part of that. Yeah, so I mean, like, she's had a huge career in TV. Is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie the On the Basis of Sex? Is that the one that... Yes, I think so. Which is another twin movie. Yeah. The film was written by Michael Tolkien, who is the writer of The Player, both the novel and the film. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. And Bruce Joel Rubin, who won an Oscar for writing Ghost. Oh. Wow. Another weepy. Not enough Otome in every movie. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I would gladly have more Otome in both of these movies. <laughs> Twin Otome movies, please. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this film was produced by David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck, who produced Jaws, a little film. Its origins are When Worlds Collide, a 1932 novel and a 1951 movie about rogue planets entering our solar system's orbit and threatening to crash into Earth, and the building of an arc to travel to another planet, which is chosen by lottery. So Spielberg had already optioned a book called The Hammer of God by Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was about an asteroid on course to hit Earth and a mission into space to stop it. So these projects eventually combined because the Jaws producers, you know, asked Spielberg and he was like, I'm already doing that. And then Amistad delayed his involvement and they knew that at this point that Disney was working on Armageddon. So Spielberg kind of ducked out of the project and they didn't want to delay it and wait for him. So they picked Mimi Leader, who was coming off of ER, which also Steven Spielberg worked on because he worked on pretty much everything. And her inspiration for this movie was On the Beach, a 1950s novel and film about the aftermath of nuclear war, which is very heavy and thoughtful and apocalyptic. 
The film was released on May 8th, 1998. It had a budget of 80 million. Opening weekend was 41.2 million. And the worldwide gross was 349.5 million, with 140 million of that in the US. One thing I noticed about both of these movies in looking at reviews is that even though some of them were negative and some were positive, what they said in both kinds of reviews was exactly the same. Like, you could read a negative review and not know if it was negative or positive. (laughs) So I just picked Mm. one because honestly, like, I had two and then I was like, they both sound lukewarm. Oh, okay. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said of this film, This is a film that finds time for Mr. Duvall to talk about Mark Twain and Herman Melville, but doesn't waste much energy on wanton destruction. It's a welcome change of pace, but action audiences looking for an exciting apocalypse will have to wait. And even though that was a positive review, that's basically what the negative reviews said, too. You know, it doesn't have much action and it's much more like ponderous and thoughtful. So it's just kind of like figuring out what your expectations are. If you're expecting like a super big action movie or you're expecting more of a drama. Yeah. And so the marketing of this movie definitely sold it on the disaster. They had like the shot of the big wave Mm -hmm. coming through Manhattan, which is the very climax of the movie. And like, if you've seen all that, you've basically seen all of the action in this movie. But of course, like audiences didn't know that. So it was a bit of a bait and switch. So anyway, what did you think about seeing this movie now? Did you uncontrollably (laughs) sob? I cried. (laughs) (laughs) A little. I cried a little. At the same points? Yes. Not at the beach scene, but at the Lily Sobieski taking the baby scene. I had some tears strolling Mm -hmm. down. I enjoyed it. I have not seen this in like 15 plus years. And I was really surprised that I thought it was a good movie. Like, you know, I don't think it's like a perfect movie. What really struck me was I was very surprised that I had a positive reaction seeing this movie. It's more of a drama, for sure, than an action movie. There's actual scenes of dialogue and character. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really good jumping off point to movies that would actually deal with what would happen if this was really happening. After I saw this movie, I was in the mood to watch Children of Men. Mm-hmm. So then I watched <laughs> Children of Men and I was like, oh, this is what would happen for real if yeah. like we knew it was like end of days coming. And I kind of wish in retrospect that Deep Impact it's almost like it was headed in that direction, but it was still watered down. You wanted it to have a deeper impact. Yes. <laughs> I I wish there was just more grit. There's moments where people are really dealing with like, oh, I am over 50, so I don't get to go into the cave that will protect people. And it was like, what would that actually be like? Being friends or family of somebody who couldn't go or you know was left out of that and dealing with the realities of that i just kind of wish that it went deeper into that (laughs) that Um, made more of an impact (laughs) considerable impression no let's use let's say considerable impression (laughs) that was the original title so I appreciated it. I'm more into like children of men, like, like, because I really feel like that deals with the actual, actual realities. But I had a positive experience watching this. Seth. I do appreciate how wistful and optimistic the setup and world of this movie is and its vision of humanity with a black president that everyone likes, US Russia cooperation an actually funded NASA, and a Morgan Freeman who we all like and are not very disappointed in. (laughs) 
Mm, but I th- <laughs> but I think Deep Impact missed just about every swing that it took. I did appreciate that there was character work in it. I think there was more attention paid to developing those characters, and especially toward developing the female characters of this movie, than there would have been by any action movie directed by a man. I appreciated some of the character choices and I liked some of the moments in the movie, but I felt it really fell apart. Even aside from just like not holding up in terms of the effects, I think it just kind of tries to graft a very straight up Apollo 13 style story onto the normal disaster movie formula and ends up not really fully succeeding at any of those. Well, yes. what did you think? So I would call this the Dante's Peak of this twinship. <laughs> it's more realistic and grounded, more based in actual science, and it was released first. It's also the least action-packed of, I think, any of these disaster movies. Um, Definitely. There's a small amount of space mayhem <laughs> and a few like special effects shots in the end, but the main characters aren't even really in very much trouble. There's not like scenes of them like escaping. They're like running up a hill, but like they're they're not like pulled into the water and like he has to like grab her and save her. It's pretty minimal action. Actually. Well, it's like the conflict is between the characters and them dealing with you know man versus nature, but it's about their relationships with each other when this thing happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I found it funny that the origins of this movie came from the 30s and the 50s and the 70s because this movie felt very old to me. It felt very much like a 70s movie or a TV movie because it was focused on characters, which I like in theory. But I felt like this one was just like a lot of melodrama. Like it wasn't actual like movie drama. It felt very like safe and contained. I agree that like the part where Lily Sobieski takes the baby, I remember that being emotionally effective to me when I saw it in the theaters. And that worked again. But pretty much everything else about the emotions in this movie didn't actually work for me. And like Seth, I felt that the technology and visual effects just looked really not good anymore. I think that Mimi Leader was interested in making a different kind of movie than I think the studio was, which was a blockbuster, obviously. They want every movie to be a big hit. And I just don't think she was that interested in, like, the visual effects or kind of, like, the disaster moviness of it. Like, she was more interested in the human story, which would be great. I mean, I would love to hear the human story, but kind of like you said, it's like, I didn't feel like it went far enough to the extent that I didn't really care for this movie that much watching it again which was somewhat surprising because thinking of it as the Dante's Peak of these two movies I thought that I might be like kind of more pulled into this one because I do like like character dramas and there's a lot more that I aesthetically would like about this movie I think that's a good place to turn our discussion toward the characters and the story in this movie, because I think one of the biggest things responsible for it not really gelling is the fact that there are so many stories going on at once. The real lead character in this movie is played by Taya Leone, and she's playing a reporter who's been on the beat for a long time and trying to, like, find her opportunity to leap ahead. Like all reporters, she wants to be a real reporter, not (laughs) a shitty reporter. Okay, Secretary of the Treasury Alan Rittenhouse resigns because of a mistress named Ellie. Biggest story in history? What an ego. Now, if it was the president... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, the president has a mistress named Ellie, and Rittenhouse pretends that he's having the affair and takes the fall and resigns, and the president buys him a yacht? 
Then there's also the story of Elijah Wood and Lily Sobieski and all their family members and their family reunions and extended gatherings and their camping trips to Tennessee. And- Elijah Wood has such pretty eyes. Okay. <laughs> Let's pause on that, because I was kind of surprised I hadn't seen this movie. I did not know that Elijah Wood was in this, and he was one of my very first crushes ever. Same. Um, He was and remains beautiful. Step back, he's 16 in this movie. (laughs) I was was young at the time. at the time. He has beautiful eyes, and I can say that. I'm not saying I'm going to fuck his eyes. Why, because they're too old for you now, (laughs) pedophile? He's beautiful in this movie. Um, That doesn't bother me that there's so many storylines. I like that different people well, are we dealing with it. We haven't finished describing the storylines <laughs> of this movie. This movie is also the story of President Morgan Freeman trying to deliberate when to reveal the story of this comet coming toward Earth yeah, and I, trying to hide it from Taylor Leone's character. I, I, and... Spurgeon Tanner, played by Robert Duvall. Spurgeon Tanner. That's a name. I don't know what... I tried to look up Spurgeon to see if I could find why it would be... We need to spend at least half an hour on Spurgeon Tanner. So his nickname is Fish, because there's a fish (laughs) called a Sturgeon. I still don't know why his name is Spurgeon. That is not a story that explains that name. Wait, who is he in the movie? He's he's the astronaut, played by Robert Duvall. He's Bruce Willis in this movie. (laughs) Robert Duvall's character is the grizzled veteran astronaut. He's the guy who, unlike the team of hotshots assembled for this mission, has done real-life moon landings and was also a military veteran, so also like flew combat planes and stuff like that. And so he's the person that everyone kind of thinks is past his prime and past his expiration date, but he shows up and really becomes the captain of the ship and of the crew. So here are my top three definitions of what a Spurgeon Tanner is. One, a Spurgeon Tanner was a popular occupation in the Middle Ages. The Spurgeon Tanner would hunt and gather the hides of cows and tan them in the sun for the leather. Number two, Spurgeon Tanner is a mid-grade fatty whitefish that you can order at fancy restaurants that probably has a thermometer's worth of mercury in it. And number three, obviously, a Spurgeon Tanner is a gynecological instrument. I think it's all three. I think it's all three. (laughs) I thought it was a tanning bed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that could be a fourth. I'm here for the Spurgeon Tanner. <laughs> I mean, I like that we get into the lives of the astronauts. I guess I just really felt like there wasn't any part that I like rolled my eyes and was like insulted by, like with a lot of action movies where I felt like they thought I was dumb. Like even though I didn't think the script went far enough in many points, I didn't feel insulted watching it. And I liked that they tried to like give backstories to a lot of the astronauts and I liked when the government knew about this and had already been making these plans and they were worried about how it would get out to the media and everyone knowing. I really appreciated that it felt like the script put thought into it, at least tried to. I felt like if this really happened, we probably as a collective whole wouldn't hear about it for a while like the government and high officials would know about it for a while and and i i appreciate the movie that like they made all these plans before it was even released to the public i feel like a lot of other types of these movies everyone's finding out at the exact same time but for me watching this it made sense that they've known for a while and they didn't know how to release it to the public it just made me think about like what would happen 
do I feel like we should know right away that an asteroid's coming and so many of us are going to die? Or is it better to not know? It just like actually made me think about what would happen if I was in that position. I think picking up on both Becky, what you and Chris are talking about, I do think it's clear that Mimi Leader and the writer set out to make a different kind of disaster movie. Definitely set out to make more of a melodramatic family drama type of disaster movie and one that was more science-ish, I would call it, uh, in the sense of trying to set up these plot turns in a somewhat science-based way. But it's still very much in the realm of fantasy, I think. And again, I think it is aiming to punch in a way that similar movies of its type didn't. But I don't think those punches land for me. Okay. I think this movie is probably best remembered for President Freeman. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Was he like the first black president? I'm pretty sure he was. One of them, definitely. Definitely. Especially in like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, and... Um, It's also a nice reminder of the days back when the president was a competent individual we somewhat trusted with big decisions and our lives. You know what? I don't want to get too much into it, but like watching any movie where there's a president in a movie, even if it's a Republican or Democrat, whatever, like there's some sort of like respect (laughs) that goes along with it. Even if it's like they don't even name the president, but they're like, honey, I'm meeting the president next week or something. Mm -hmm. Like it's supposed to be like, ooh, that's like a good thing. Like, wow, I'm so impressed. Yeah. Well, like, but it's even at that, really it's even at that, it's weird because all the presidents we've had through our lifetimes, really with the exception of Obama at most, have been venal, incompetent bastards who have, in one way or another, set up slow rolling disasters of the human made sort. But I don't really think that any presidents that we've actually had deserve the kind of esteem and respect that the presidents in these movies are afforded. Deserve, but we still gave it to them. That's true. Generally. That's true. true. There was a long overhang of that respect there. But I also think it's interesting because the governments that those presidents were in charge of throughout our lifetimes were also already defunded, disinvested in, privatized. And it's interesting that in these movies, one of the kind of underlying things that in the worlds of almost all of these movies is a government that is fully funded, that is staffed by competent people who really care and who really care about public service and about saving people and about being selfless. And that is, in and of itself, an interesting thing, because that's really not a factor in a lot of other kinds of action movies, and especially not a factor in other movies that are about politicians and governmental figures, most of whom are kind of always depicted as corrupt and incompetent. I think there are a lot of movies that depict the government as pretty slick and efficient, especially like Hollywood movies. Like often like the government is like a shadowy conspiracy, like evil place. I feel like this is in line with the times of how we thought about the government. I mean, maybe if you knew a lot more, but like the general public, I think probably thought that, yeah, the government would like totally handle this kind of thing competently. Completely the opposite. After Watergate, the general impression of the government has been as this malevolent force. Like, yeah, they can be slick and efficient, but that's usually for some shady shit. Like, initially with these comments, the people are not told about. Like, the general impression of government and pop culture has been very negative for most of our lifetimes, I would say. I kind of would disagree. I think that politicians in pop culture are always seen as, like, uh, two side, what is it? Two faced mm-hmm. and slick and looking out for their own, own interests. But I think a lot of these Hollywood blockbusters, 
the president is seen as a force of like a good force. Like I'm thinking of like Independence Day with Bill Pullman, like almost always in these movies, the president is seen as like competent, trustworthy, um, looking out for the people as a whole, yeah, like a good force. Right, that's what I'm saying, though, is that that's not how presidents in real life were perceived. And it's interesting to me that our fantasy version of these presidents are the people who are mm-hmm. pure-hearted in that way, the Bill Pullmans of the world. Yeah. yeah, I think, like, government, like, other politicians are often portrayed badly. Like, there's usually, like, a presidential aide or, like, a secretary of defense who's, like, a blowhard and he's supposed to be an asshole. But, like, the president is usually, like, a good guy up until now <laughs> in in yeah. pop culture in movies yes but n- that's why watching this i think going forward when new things come out you can't do that anymore no because people <laughs> will be like are you seeing what's happening like obviously people don't feel that way and it's a joke to think otherwise so seeing this like era of hollywood where the president is seen as this respectful do-gooding entity that's not going to happen anymore. So there's like a little bit of a datedness watching these movies from not even that long ago. I I think that's totally right. I think that's totally right. It's not that it's problematic, but it's just our perspective on all of this has been very much inflected and changed by events that came after these movies came out. Yeah. I really liked the scenes in this movie where Taya Leone is talking with her mom, played by Vanessa Redgrave. Vanessa Redgrave's character is one of the people who, because she's over 50, is not included in the kind of rescue mission to hide away humans to survive this incoming comet. And Vanessa Redgrave's character is this chain-smoking martini hound, and I just fucking adore her, and I kind of (laughs) wish more of the movie were somewhat more informal, like those moments, because those were character moments that worked for me and felt legitimate and felt like characters who were people moving in the world whereas even a lot of the stuff with Elijah Wood and Lily Sobieski's storyline seemed to be very much going through the motions of what a grand scale story involving kids would have to go through. That story to me felt like going through the motions but at least like that part of Taylor Leone's story at least worked a bit more. Yeah, I thought Vanessa Redgrave was really great in this movie. It surprised me because I didn't remember her as someone in this movie because there's a lot of bigger characters and stars that you think of first, like Morgan Freeman and Elijah Wood, Taya Leone, Robert Duvall. Vanessa Redgrave, I think, gets kind of forgotten because she has such a small part. And spoiler, she dies <laughs> early in the movie, fairly early in the movie. How does she die? I think she kills herself, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she kind of sees it as inevitable that she'll die anyways, and she puts on makeup and, like, a nice dress. And yeah, I agree with you, Seth, that that was the one kind of point where I connected to a character who's actually thinking, like, oh my god, there's a comet coming toward Earth in six months or whatever. Like, what am I actually going to do about it? How do I feel? And she talks about, you know, like, selling art and preserving it for the future. And that was something that I found thoughtful, and I, I wished that this movie dealt more with the details of the lottery and who gets to go and who doesn't get to go. I mean, I honestly think that that should have been the focus of the entire movie. Yeah, I agree. And that is something that it touches on her character as well as Elijah Wood's storyline. Like, they both deal with that. But there's a long section of the movie that's up in space. And it feels very awkwardly, like, lumped into the middle of this movie. Yeah, I feel like all of the characters' stories on Earth and all of the characters' stories in space take away time from each other's stories and work to each other's detriment rather than really complementing each other. And maybe part of that is a lack of, like, 
like people in the spaceship who were like related to the people on Earth. That and maybe the writing in general. Again, it just doesn't really gel for me. I think in part because they're just very different ships and they don't really pass each other. And I generally like this movie, but I would have been perfectly happy if it was just like the government announcing, hey, you know what? There's a comet in six months. This is what we've figured out. We can make room for a million people. Here's who gets in. And then the movie is the fallout of that. Mm -hmm. And there is no going into space. There is no saving anything. I feel like that's really interesting. Fascinating for a movie. And I thought it would have made all of the interpersonal family drama that much more devastating because it raises the stakes of everything and it raises the stakes of everyone's story, you know, and much earlier on. It could have spent, again, a lot more time developing that and having all of that hit a lot harder. Making a deeper impact. (laughs) A more considerable impression. So we liked the moment when Lily Sobieski gets handed her baby sibling. I and hated her that moment. You hated I thought it? that was I thought that was like a forced, arbitrary establishment of heteronormative what? What? nuclear family coupling. What? No, I literally thought it was a kind of narrative story choice to reinforce the idea of the last man and woman on Earth like reproducing and starting the species over again, except they removed sex from the equation by having it just be Lily Sobieski's little sibling. I want to go more into that storyline. <laughs> yeah, we need to I go into it. that. So Elijah Wood plays Leo Biederman, who's a high school student, or maybe even a junior high student, I it's think. Like a junior high, I think. He's like 14. Yeah, and uh, Lily Sobieski is a classmate of his, and Elijah Wood basically is the first one who sees this unidentified thing in the sky and alerts an actual like adult scientist whose last name is Wolf because the comet ends up being called Wolf Biederman, which is not very catchy. <laughs> I don't think a comet needs to be catchy. <laughs> a movie comet should be catchy. In Armageddon, the comet's name is Dottie, and I like it. Oh God. <laughs> Lily Sobieski was 14 when she made this movie. Okay. Their romance is so weird to me. Like, they get married. Yeah. (laughs) It's child marriage. Like, it literally is. Well, under duress. (laughs) No, but still. I think all child marriage is under duress. (laughs) That's That's the whole point. I talked to Civil Defense. They said if you and I got married, we'd be family and I could get you in. Well, what about my parents? They're not your family. I don't want to go without my parents. You don't have to. I'm the famous Leo Biederman, and I haven't used my fame for anything. But I got them to let your family go, too. This is your only chance to survive. Because it wasn't just that one moment in the movie where, you know, like, the tidal wave is hitting and they have to flee with this baby. Like, that to me felt like an encapsulation of their entire relationship in this movie. It literally is like a forced disaster fleeing, but then it's characterized with the lofty romantic tones of some, like, genuine romance, where I don't think they spend enough time together at all for us to get any sense of their dynamic and their chemistry. Right. I don't understand why they're so young. I feel like that would work so much better if they were like 16 or 18. Are they definitely, do we know their ages in this movie? Because I feel no, like they but could they be 16. S- they're they ki- don't they're act, kids. they act like, like there's, it is completely sexless. Like they get married, but we don't have yeah. any indication that they actually like sleep together. They probably don't. I think by the beats of this story is they're only really doing this for her to be able to come along on the lottery. But I feel like it would make so much more sense 
if like the kids thought that they were in love and they're like, let's get married. And the parents were like, no, we won't let you. And that's why he like runs after her is they won't allow them to get married. The fact that they do get married just feels like a very strange detail. Well, it doesn't bother me because I really feel like that adds to this is how I don't want to keep saying deep. (laughs) This is how like intense everything is getting that we have to marry for you to come with me. There's no sexual we have to have sex like it's completely like I like you I have a crush on you or like you're my girlfriend but like I want to do this because I want to save you and your family and the government isn't going to let us you know do this unless we put it on paper that didn't bother me I think that there are more implications that they could have you know discovered in all of that like what does that actually mean like that now you're married like maybe she doesn't really want to do that but she wants to save her mom and dad and theoretically they were supposed to come along like they could have done a little bit more with that but the fact that (laughs) they get married because of this government like loophole doesn't bother me in the story it really bothers me that really bothers me that's that's so creepy i think it it is creepy but that's like nuance it needs you to have more of like what these characters are actually thinking like we have no idea do these kids even want to get married like Right, does Lily Sobieski actually want to be forced to be a mother? Or is she just doing this to save her parents' lives, which is fine, but we just need we need to know more about this like very complicated situation. As far as the baby is concerned, like it's her sibling. It's not some random baby, it's her sibling. And just the idea of parents sacrificing themselves to give their children a shot of safety, I guess that's what made me really emotional and that she's just a child and she has to become this mother to her baby brother or whatever. Like, I guess that's why I get emotional. I feel like that's a really dramatic, emotional scene, seeing parents sacrifice themselves. You don't have any time. You have to go now. No, 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 put this on. Daddy! Daddy, what are you doing? I want you to take the baby. No, 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 Mom. Yes, no arguments. No, 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 I feel like that's true if the movie had, like, set that up and really, like, yeah. built her into a character. I just don't know enough about who she is or what she's thinking in that moment to, like, really care that much. And I think, Becky, that that is emotion that you are substituting in. It's a totally genuine and understandable emotional response to the movie, but I think that's not necessarily work that the movie fully does competently on its own. Another aspect of that storyline that I find really confusing is the scientist in the beginning who discovers the comet and then dies. I think the reason behind that is because he was going to tell the authorities, but because he died, it people did there wasn't enough time then to do anything right but is the like, government already knows like the next thing is that like Taya Leone has to find out but the government has known for a long time there was like, like a, a deleted or something? there was a deleted scene that kind of explained it the function of him dying serves no narrative it's purpose. just a plot device it's just it's, a, it's plot not device. Even a plot device though because it doesn't affect the plot I felt like it did but now I can't remember <laughs> but I remember he died and then a year went by so it was like oh like if only he had not died and gotten that information out then 
then people would have had more time to prepare. But, but they do prepare anyway. I mean that it serves only as a plot device, where it's kind of like not really all that connected to the whole story. I think one thing to compare that to within the movie is how Taylioni's character learns about the comet heading toward Earth in what she thinks is the context of one of the president's aides, James Cromwell, having an affair, and eventually the comet news only becomes divulged because Taylioni threatens to go public with this affair story. I like the general setup of that, where because an extinction-level event is called ELE, it's mistaken that Ellie is a mistress and not a giant chunk of ice that's about to kill everyone. I find that fun, but like that would be the good beginning to a movie where we hadn't already seen the scientist guy discovering the comet because we're way behind her character. Like we need to be with her character discovering this. Like these storylines don't complement each other at all. They feel like different drafts of the screenplay that could have been. I like most of these, but I think the script just misses so many opportunities to have these characters interact. Like all of these storylines are basically separate. Taya Leone is the MSNBC reporter and she briefly interacts with Morgan Freeman as the president. And then Leo Biederman, played by Elijah Wood, like becomes famous for like two seconds. Like he's on the cover of like Time Magazine or something like that. And then he has a press conference at his school? Yeah, but it's like, that's an opportunity to have like her interviewing him, him meeting the president, him meeting like the guy who's going to go up in space and stop this thing. And none of this happens. Like none of these characters ever meet each other. And it's just a very strange, like disconnected where it's just like, now we're on... in a spaceship and it's an Apollo 13 movie and then it's like this kind of family melodrama with Taya Leone and then it's like a completely different like kind of kiddie teen romance it's so many different genres like it just doesn't feel like they were written in the same time frame at all it felt like and Apollo 13 came out in 95 Mm -hmm. right and this is 98 and Apollo 13 it was a huge hit so I feel like obviously they were like we need some space scenes and they were like it needs to be like two hours long and it has to have this in it and it has to have that and if that that disaster element didn't have to be so prominent, I bet they would have had time to flesh out everything that we're saying needed more fleshing out. Yeah. Yeah. There was an original draft where on the beach when Taya Leone and her father are there, it's actually like a whole like end of the world, like beach Woodstock-esque like party. And I feel like that's again, like something about like what would really be people's mindset. Like there isn't very much chaos in this movie at all. Like people no, are very... really isn't. It felt pretty tame. That's why it felt like a jumping off point. Like there's a little bit of like talk, like what would really happen or how would people feel in this situation? But the reality is, there'd be so many murders and people taking identities to get in the safety zone. So many zone. suicides. So many suicides. Yeah. So much like fucking chaos yeah. mm-hmm. as soon as they know this is going to happen. Like there'd be so many people just killing each other trying to get into that safety underground area there would be just absolute chaos and people partying and people doing all these drugs and i know this isn't fair to a pg-13 1998 movie but i want to see that movie (laughs) well and i think that's that's why becky your comparison to children of men was so spot on because really the shock in watching that movie is the experience that you're going through that you're watching these characters go through on screen in that moment rather than something where you have to like actively place yourself into their shoes and consider what they may be feeling like but aren't necessarily like dramatizing their actual relationships and everything on screen I'm actually surprised now that we're talking about it that there isn't a movie that kind of does this premise but does it that way like yeah yeah, that is kind of there are dark like kind of dystopian (laughs) Let's write it! 
Copyright when we were young, 2018. <laughs> WGA registered. <laughs> I would I would like to see that movie. Yeah, I think me that too. would be fantastic. Like it would very quickly turn into a Mad Max world as soon as they're like, guess what, everybody? <laughs> like we don't have any time. <laughs> you got six months. Like <laughs> it's actually kind of the leftovers. Now that I'm thinking about yeah. it, which Mimi Leader was also a big part of. Uh, the leftovers is awesome. We talked a little about Jurassic Park 3 in the last episode, starring Taya Leone. <laughs> like, I don't have anything against Taya Leone, but she is not a charismatic enough <laughs> actress to, like, hold these movies, I don't think. Like, in this movie, she's a terrible news anchor. <laughs> she's not great at she, news No, no, it's, it's worse than that. She cannot play an unconvincing news anchor. She cannot act <laughs> i think is the plainest way to put that and further she has what tom cruise had until the mid to late 90s which is that like giant tooth in the center of her mouth and i don't know if y'all noticed it <laughs> I but i cannot that. notice anything else once i see it look i only i'm so biased <laughs> because at this time 14 year old becky was in love with david Duchovny, who was married to tay leone <laughs> so even though i cried a little when she died on the beach i was also kind of happy <laughs> You're like, die, bitch. <laughs> I just oh find it God, really so surprising <laughs> that she, I mean, this movie came before Jurassic Park 3, but that she became like a blockbuster actress. And like, this character could be interesting. Like, there are, a better performance could have saved a little of this character. Don't give her too much credit because it's not <laughs> like she's like Angelina Jolie, you know, a Taylioni vehicle. Like, she was in a Jurassic Park movie, the stars, the dinosaurs, and mm-hmm. the, and the, franchise and then she's in an asteroid comet movie yeah i mean i don't think that this was like drawing the attention of hollywood's biggest stars but i don't know like renee russo could have done something with this part or i don't know i again i i think renee russo could have bit off a ton of a better written part in a movie that was structured more around like the lottery system for instance than around just the comet slash the space crew slash elijah wood (laughs) Yeah, there was some concern that Mimi Leader was like a little too distracted by the effects that she didn't have enough time to direct the actors as well. So even though this was a movie made by a female and I want to support that, I just kind of feel like she wasn't the right choice. Like I imagine this as a Steven Spielberg movie and I think that even with the same script, he could have just heightened the emotions and he would have filled in the background. Like it would have felt like things are really happening in this world. I wonder what it's like to be Steven Spielberg and like be basically attached to direct every single movie and then have to drop out of some and be like, yeah, I was going to do that better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you often put yourself in Steven Spielberg's shoes? (laughs) Every chance I get. (laughs) Deep Impact ended up being the number eight movie of 1998. Armageddon was the number two movie that year. Number three was There's Something About Mary, which we'll be covering shortly. What was number one? Saving Private Ryan. Oh. But Armageddon was number one internationally. So it was a big deal, even bigger than Deep Impact. <laughs> Were there not porn parodies of these movies called like Deeper Impact and like Armageddon on or something? Or am I um, making yes. these up? There <laughs> certainly <laughs> were. There were. Even Mimi Leader on the commentary <laughs> said like when she first heard the title, she's like, that sounds like porn. <laughs> <laughs> she was like desperately trying to think of a better title. And for some reason, no one could think of another title that they liked more than Deep Impact. Hmm. So there are some similarities between Deep Impact and Armageddon. They both have space heroes sacrificing themselves using a nuclear warhead to break up the comet slash asteroid. I don't want to get it wrong. They both kill millions of anonymous CGI people, but still manage to spring for an upbeat ending. They both really only care what happens in America. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the same astronaut, Joe Allen, consulted on both movies. So I would definitely call Deep Impact the democratic of the two movies. It has a black president. <laughs> the protagonist is a reporter from MSNBC. <laughs> and the comet is the size of Manhattan. Armageddon, on the other hand, oh. is the more Republican of <laughs> the two. I know what you're going to say. This is absolutely true. It has a white male president. The protagonist is a blue-collar dude who loves guns and hates taxes. And works on a fucking oil rig. And the asteroid is the size of Texas. <laughs> Literally, the the centerpiece of the movie is oil drillers drilling. That's a really funny observation. Yeah. Like, this is the drill baby drill movie. You're totally right. I can't believe I didn't see that, Chris. That's genius. Every step up the ladder of science. Every adventurous reach into space. All of our combined modern technologies and imaginations. Even the wars that we fought have provided us the tools to wage this terrible battle. Through all the chaos that is our history, through all of the wrongs and the discord, through all of the pain and suffering, through all of our times, there is one thing that has nourished our souls and elevated our species above its origins, and that is our courage. Dreams of an entire planet are focused tonight on those 14 brave souls traveling into the heavens. That man's not a salesman. That's your daddy. So this film was brought to you by Michael Bay. (laughs) Was it? I couldn't tell. Michael Benjamin Bay was born... I don't even know. I don't know. He was born in 1965 in Los Angeles, also raised Jewish, just like Mimi Leader in the same, both in LA and both raised Jewish. So I guess there's something about them and the comets, (laughs) the asteroids, I don't know. The Jews? (laughs) Really? The Jews control the comets. We all know this, Becky. (laughs) No, I've I've never heard anything about that before. (laughs) As a child, he attached firecrackers to a toy train and filmed it on Super 8. (laughs) He set his bedroom on fire and got grounded for two weeks. He blew up his siblings. <laughs> That's not true. I want the biopic of Michael Bay's life to be like a Michael Bay movie. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like his like crib explodes. <laughs> At the age of 15, he interned for George Lucas on Raiders of the Lost Ark, which he predicted would suck. He changed his mind once he saw the movie. He attended Wesleyan University and his cousin-in-law is Leonard Nimoy. In the 90s, he was doing commercials for uh, Coke and Got Milk. He did, I think, the first Got Milk commercial, which is very memorable. One where he's, like, trying to answer a radio question about who shot oh, Alexander. Aaron Burr. Yeah, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton's that was Michael Bay? That's a famous commercial. Yeah. He then went on to make Bad Boys, starring Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, and The Rock, starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Armageddon was also uh, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, who was already, like, a big action brand name producer. Uh, He had done Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun, as well as The Rock, also directed by Michael Bay. And it was produced also by Gail Ann Hurd, who did a lot of James Cameron's movies, and also Tremors and then Dante's Peak. She's been married three times to James Cameron, Brian De Palma, and Jonathan Hensley. Jonathan Hensley was the uh, original screenwriter of Armageddon. So Hmm. she likes to date filmmakers, I guess. Who doesn't? (laughs) Uh, Hensley also wrote Jumanji, The Rock, Con Air, and Die Hard with a Vengeance. The origins of this film come from Gail Ann Hurd and Disney working on a script called Premonition, which was about a man obsessed with the idea of an asteroid coming to Earth. 
which they liked the idea of, but thought it wasn't big enough to actually like make into a movie. So they were looking for a way to make it a bigger like spectacle movie. At this time, in addition to Deep Impact, Fox was also developing an asteroid movie and Roland Emmerich wanted to do one to follow up Independence Day. We could have had four to five asteroid movies and instead we got two. So maybe we should be grateful. Thank you. (laughs) Those are my tears of gratitude. So the writer, Jonathan Ensley, had been kind of preoccupied with this idea of an oil fire firefighter named Red Adair, who is a real guy. He hadn't really quite found what the story would be. And then when he heard the ideas of the asteroid movie, he decided that that kind of guy would be Harry Stamper going into space and saving everyone. Since The Rock, Michael Bay had not found anything that interested him, so he had gone back to commercials. When the writer and Michael Bay pitched this movie, Disney exec Joe Roth said yes in 20 minutes before the pitch was even over and declared that it would be the biggest movie of 1998. There was just a, tons of cocaine on the table, too, I'm sure. Yeah, there was more cocaine than table <laughs> in that scenario. So Jonathan Ensley and J.J. Abrams are credited for the script itself. Not Joss Whedon? Not Joss Whedon. As far as I know, this is a Whedon-free not, joint. Not M. Night Shyamalan? <laughs> also did not touch this, but Tony Gilroy. <laughs> what? who's known for Michael Clayton and the Bourne movies, did work on the script, as well as Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown. Oh my god. Robert Town's definitely on the list of, like, legendary script doctors. So this is, this is surprising. How many writers total are credited? Three. Jonathan Ensley gets two credit, one for story and one for script. And then there's two other writers credited, one for story, one for script. But also many, many other writers worked on this. Yeah, that's the thing. I imagine this is like a dirty dozen scenario. Whatever the number for pi is. (laughs) That's only three. And like, I don't know what 0.14 of a writer is. The guy who wrote Collateral Beauty. (laughs) Fair. So Armageddon was released on July 1st, 1998. So we are basically celebrating the 20th anniversary of both of these films. Uh, we're right, coming out right between them. The budget for this one was $140 million. Its Whoa. opening weekend was $36.1 million. Domestically, it grossed $201.6 million and worldwide $553.7 million. So it was a big hit. One of the more negative reviews came from our friend Roger Ebert, not Rita. <laughs> he said, here it is at last, the first 150-minute trailer. <laughs> oh, Roger. Armageddon is cut together like its own highlights. Take almost any 30 seconds at <laughs> random and you have a TV ad. The movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. I think this review is from his I, I hate, hated, 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 hated this movie book. Mm-hmm. Which Mm -hmm. I love. Yeah, he gave it one star. (laughs) The movie got pretty bad press as it was released. Critics really, for the most part, did not like the film. Like, they especially railed against the style that he shot it in. Todd McCarthy of Variety wrote also a negative review the weekend that it came out. And Bay felt the need to call him up and complain that this was a personal attack because Michael Bay and Todd McCarthy had dated the same girl at Wesleyan. And apparently Todd McCarthy was bitter about it. Todd McCarthy replied that he is 15 years older than Michael Bay and had never been to Wesleyan. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll just say Michael Bay has a reputation as being a full asshole, uh, both in his professional capacities as a director and personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's basically true. (laughs) So you guys had never seen this movie or... 
Sorry. I had, I just don't remember when or what capacity before I watched it for this. And I'd never seen it. The only the only parts of it I'd seen are the trailer, of course. And I saw it as the demonstration DVD of a home theater system. <laughs> um, I, and if I remember correctly, it was at Epcot Center in Disney World, like in Florida. Because we would go there like for summer on summer vacations with my family. And I remember they had part of it that was like, this is the future of home theater. And Armageddon, which I'm sure we'll mention at some point, was one of the first Criterion Collection DVDs. Um, So I saw like maybe five to ten minutes of the movie playing from a DVD in this like... Epcot Center. In Epcot Center. (laughs) I mean, that makes sense. Uh, The movie is a Disney movie. Uh, So I would describe this movie as one character in the movie describes the asteroid... It's big, it's dense, it's got some gravity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Chris. This movie opens with voiceover from Charlton Heston. (laughs) Is that who it was? Yes. That's amazing. I did not pin it as him. I don't know why. I wish he was an Arrested Development style narrator throughout the whole movie. <laughs> Ron Howard presents. <laughs> so, what did you guys think of Armageddon? Not too much. <laughs> this movie is two and a half hours <laughs> of noise and fake tension and obnoxious. <laughs> just obnoxious in full capital letters uh i don't know why exactly i hated this movie so much but i think we'll discover as i talk through all my points (laughs) over the course of this podcast i i oh my god was this so hard to get through so So, difficult to get so hard to get through and it was two and a half hours and it felt like five years of my life and i Oh, I wanted to shut it off immediately. I was turned <laughs> off by this movie immediately. It sounds like it made a really deep impact on you. <laughs> God damn it. Stop, Chris. Stop. For the love of God. <laughs> I cannot. There are worse movies I've seen, like Ace Ventura or even She's All That. Like, worse in just, like, even, like, a filmmaking way. And yet this movie turned me off so much. And yet you did not turn it off. So. I couldn't. I had to watch it for the... I, believe me, I wanted to turn it off. <laughs> I thought you guys would yell at me if I didn't finish it. I would have. I want to see a documentary of you watching this movie. <laughs> it's like me playing video games where I'm just screaming the whole time. <laughs> I hated it. Seth? Uh, um... Yeah. The more dramatic the pause, the more. <laughs> Just this whole movie is trash. This movie is rotten eggshells and seagull shit in a dumpster over at Venice Beach. Uh, this movie is so loud. So loud. Even the quiet parts are screaming in your ear, and there are basically no characters. Everyone's just like a grab bag of kind of caricatures. I think the most abiding point of this that stayed with me really for days after watching was Bruce Willis's 25% attempt at a Southern accent. (laughs) He really only even tries for it in the first like 
two or three scenes of this movie. But he tries to go for, like, this southern accent because he's playing an oil man and, like, a roughneck. And he, like, wants to try to be anything but the most New York man ever. I did not pick up on an accent at all. That was... Good! Because <laughs> he wasn't putting one down. God. This movie doesn't even attempt all that much in the way of gravitas or gravity. And what little attempts it does make, I don't think it lands at all. I could tell that it had at least nine or ten different writers' fingerprints all over it. There's no, like, one tone or direction that this movie is going in except for, again, loud explosionness. Chris? I have no real drive to defend Armageddon. <laughs> I'm not attached to it as, like, a nostalgic film. It's not a gem. <laughs> but I had a good time with it. Like, I was actually pretty entertained. I found it to be, like, a decent piece of entertainment. I was much more entertained than I was watching Deep Impact. And I found that even though, like, this movie is completely manipulative, laying it on really thick. Like, I would say there is gravity in here, but it's like a hollow gravity where it's like, like, the scenes are very um, portentous and and kind of, you know, somberly delivered. At, but it, it's this kind of like, I don't know, music video somberness where it's not very, you, like, you don't and actually feel those emotions. Yeah, because they're choreographed and like totally paint by numbers the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I think that this film looks like the directorial debut of Norman Rockwell. Like it's, <laughs> it totally it's does. It's that steeped in, like, Americana. And, like, it, it's, like, hyper-saturated color. Yeah, and... let, let's talk about this movie as, like, American propaganda, which you could probably talk about, like, any Michael Bay movie. As totally. being, like, totally pro-America, like, oh, very xenophobic. pro-white America. Yes. Pro, like, right-wing white America. The spaceships are called the Freedom and the Independence. And the thing about that (laughs) is that, like, it's going to space. Shouldn't it be called the Discovery or the... Explorer. Like, the Explorer or, like, the Mars Curiosity rover. Yeah. Like, something scientific and, and about all of us on planet earth and yet it is freedom and independence which these are our like, spaceships they're called the uss kick ass <laughs> and the uss fuck you up <laughs> there is a line in this movie where a character says houston this is a kick-ass ride <laughs> um yeah the, i did not like the names of the spaceships uh the messiah in deep impact was a much better i think spaceship yes, name it's it's a little bit more inclusive of of humanity versus america domination domination nationalism. nationalism america what does space have to do with freedom and independence isn't it about safety of the world yes <laughs> like it's that like i know that sounds so like specific and nitpicking but it's a broader thing in this movie where there's shots of bruce willis where there's literally an american flag behind him in the background and it's so purposefully deliberate to have these american american quote-unquote images like where they're in cornfields or like like um oil rigs and this republican-y like everyman uh blue collar like america that like it's so um propaganda like that and it's, it's propaganda yeah. because and you're hitting like hitting the nail that you're talking about even more squarely on the head this is a war movie 
Yes. This is an American war movie, and that propagandistic element is absolutely a part of that, where, like, every single layer of this story and these characters and their approach to dealing with this impending comet asteroid is entirely from the perspective of declaring and waging war on it. And Deep Impact is pretty similar in the end result, you know, but it's message about that is done from the perspective of science and, you know, like, and in the common goal of defending humanity, not necessarily specifically defending America. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of found it weird with both of these movies that the focus was so on America. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've had a lot of more recent movies, mostly because movies are becoming more international and there's more international box office out there. But movies are definitely, like, this kind of movie is becoming a more, like, global sensation rather than, like, so focused on America. This one does show disasters in Shanghai and uh, Paris, but I guess the big kind of centerpiece is the opening uh, destruction of New York City. That was really hard to watch now. It was, okay. <laughs> well, first of all, Deep Impact and Armageddon both have the Twin Towers in them. And yeah. they're both pre-9-11. And it's not the movie's fault, but it's very strange just watching yeah. them now. Seeing these events happening in Manhattan very few years before yeah. that event. Mm. That was so uncomfortable watching that moment that is supposed to be fun where part of the asteroid lands on the tiny target that is Manhattan Island. (laughs) Do you know the odds of something hitting Manhattan and how tiny it is compared to the rest of Earth? I mean, I don't have the numbers, but (laughs) I I would say that they are small. Run the math, Chris. Get back to us. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, the tone was so strange in that scene where people are dying and there's, like, a giant part of the asteroid hitting the Chrysler building and there's a hole in the ground. But there's this weird comedic, like... And Eddie Griffin... Is that who that was? Yes. Is running through the streets with his tiny-ass dog and somehow is not eradicated in flames? (laughs) Like... Well, this movie at least has a dog in jeopardy. Which is all of the other disaster movies have had, except Deep Impact, no dog in Jeopardy. I'm I'm used to danger babies. Yeah. (laughs) That sequence, it plays really differently. And I know that there have been other movies, like, since 2001 that have also destroyed cities, including Manhattan, which really, like, it just plays differently now. And I haven't seen a lot of those movies because I just don't find that fun anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. it kind of was fun back in the 90s. Like... When it was an impossibility, you Yeah, know? when, like, Independence Day obviously, like, really kicked that off. And I don't remember this feeling, like, weird watching it back then. But, like, the actual shot of, like, the Chrysler building falling and, like, people falling out of uh-huh. it is just, like... Again, it's, like, nothing that this movie is doing wrong. Like, mm-hmm. and now that just is... I felt kind of sick to my stomach watching that this time. And just the way that it was treated was so comedic. Glib, yeah. Like, glib, yeah. Not cracking jokes, but it's, like, a lighthearted tone when there's people have already died very early in this movie. Yeah, I mean, both of these movies are pretty cavalier about death. I thought Deep Impact would be a little less so, but it's actually like, it's just like this very distant shot of like a wave going Uh through Manhattan and you have no sense that like actual people are there and dying and it's kind of the same here with like Paris is destroyed in this like one shot.
shot, which is like very sad <laughs> in this. Like there's just no, like they don't pause and like be like, oh my God, like Paris, can you believe it? The way that people do in real life when. Because it's less about the people in these scenarios. It's more about the landmarks being destroyed. Like, exactly. Wow. It's it's only about the spectacle. In fact, I think the opening shots in Team America World Police, where like the puppets are carrying fucking baguettes around and wearing berets <laughs> and like then Paris gets bombed. Like I think that's kind of a direct parody of this because a lot of that movie is parodying Michael Bay shots. Probably. Um, yeah. yeah. And even like spinning further on the war theme, I think Michael Bay is one of the most fascist filmmakers. Ultimately, I think so many of his stories do boil down to like patriarchy and being about the strong white man who ends up taking a leadership role, or at least the strong man who ends up taking a leadership role, and about that leadership being about violence to establish power and defend power. Yeah, I think the kind of dehumanization goes hand in hand with that. So what you're talking about, Michael Bay, the types of stories he's gravitated towards filming, I also want to talk about just his filming style. I don't think it's bad, but I just found a lot of this movie really uninteresting to look at. Like the composition of shots was boring and flat. Almost every scene has that turn camera thing Mm -hmm. where the camera is moving, but it's not just for tense supposedly tense scenes it's for people that are just standing around the camera is still moving so it doesn't feel like every scene is almost treated the same way and it just i guess that is poor filmmaking and it's very much his visual style he's one of the more like mtv style of filmmakers and that flatness and drabness is part of you know making something that is smooth and polished at least by those conventions yeah every shot of the movie was super clear but in a very boring way where like there was yes. no shadowed lighting on anyone's face or no one came out of shadows or like you think of like Spielberg and, and his cinematographer lighting and natural lighting is a big thing and, and it's they, interesting and, to look at. And they have camera movements but those camera movements tell you something about those characters or yeah. help you help bring you closer to the experience of the world through those characters' yeah, eyes. But, and in this yeah. movie it's again just about showing off that the camera can move that way while all those things blow up. Yeah. He exciting does, things happen. He does that for every character. So it's almost yes. like, okay, well, that's boring to look at with every character in every scene. The camera is doing the exact same thing. I can see everything very clearly. So it's not interesting to look at. Nothing is compelling. I think that contributed to this movie being such a slog to get through two and a half hours because nothing looked that interesting. I have no desire to defend Michael Bay's <laughs> style of filmmaking or his politics or like any any of that. Okay. All right, <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Great. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. But like I found I mean I definitely see what you're saying and I if that didn't work for you, like I totally get it. I found it, like, pretty dynamic, and I do think that there are, like, parts of this movie that are really beautifully shot. Like, like what? The rocket going up and, like, people in front of the American flag and all of the stuff that feels like Norman Rockwell stuff is, like, beautiful to look at, even though I know it's incredibly, like, jingoistic and manipulative. There was a level of me that was still, like, moved by it. Like, the whole swelling music and the president's, like, strong words. Like, as much as I realize that that's (laughs) bullshit in a lot of ways, like, there's a part of me that, like, goes for that bullshit. But, I mean, come on. Hell with Norman Rockwell. Let's even just compare this movie to, like, Top Gun. Top Gun is plenty jingoistic, nationalistic, rah-rah American. There's all that symbolism. There's, you know, musical swells and hot rock and roll and 
hot chicks and babes and whatever, but like that draws you in and the spectacles work because they establish the characters. And I even think the movie feels inert just on the basis of the very loud explosions and plot turns and twists. Like if it were, if it were just that kind of spectacle and that spectacle worked, I think I would have enjoyed the movie a lot more than I did. I mean, I think this movie actually spends a lot of time on the characters. They are not the most complicated people you will ever meet, but I watched the Criterion Edition, which is a director's <laughs> cut, which is, I think, only about... Is it longer? Yes. Oh, God. I think it's only about three minutes, minutes longer. <laughs> Wow, what a difference those three minutes make. Huh? It's yeah. just a three-minute-long Bruce Willis dong shot. He's just hanging dong for three, three minutes. three minutes of Michael Bay snorting cocaine off of a mirror and fucking the mirror? <laughs> yes. It's actually Steven Tyler singing the whole Don't Want to Miss the Thing song just in the middle of the movie. All of that. While Bruce Willis hangs down. <laughs> but it was 73 minutes into the movie before they, like, lifted off into space. Like, that whole first... 70 minutes is basically character development and like plot development and I think that the supporting cast of this movie is like actually pretty fun and those characters are fun like I like the dialogue of this movie I think Steve Buscemi is a lot of fun what <laughs> he is a walking me too oh my god can example I, can I, we talk about <laughs> I want to refute both your points right now with one line we call him hound because he's horny it's one of the worst lines in a screenplay I've ever heard and the characters i, w- I want to like steve buscemi i like him but not in this movie they made he, it so hard for me to his like him. character has a running joke through the entire movie about how he sleeps with underage chicks and that he swears he didn't know their age that is a running joke throughout this whole movie i mean i totally get if you didn't notice it because the whole movie is so loud and repetitive oh i noticed it it didn't <laughs> bother me like i'm not saying he's a likable character he's just like a really like none of these guys to me are are, like particularly likable i guess they're supposed to be likable they're supposed to be like interesting fun guys that maybe you wouldn't be friends with but you like watching that's, yeah, that's what they're exactly. supposed they're, to be they're, i think they're very engaging characters like they're fun to watch i don't uphold any of them as a great moral standard the beginning the very beginning of this movie in terms of like harry stamper's story i don't really like because he's like shooting at ben affleck for oh my god sleeping with his daughter his, he's He's shooting... When we meet these people, the very beginning, Bruce Willis finds out Ben Affleck, who he doesn't like, I guess, because he thinks he's, what, like, an income poop or something? Like, I don't know. Why doesn't he really like him? Because he secretly loves him. Well, he only doesn't like him because he's with his daughter. He no, likes him he, otherwise. He seems no, to have a problem already, with him before they, he... Yeah, they have this, like, play-fighting relationship yeah. where they... Well, he's, but he's, like, his protege, so, like... It, but the problem is that he's, like, with, with his no, daughter. No, but he doesn't know. When we meet them in the movie, Liv Tyler, who is Bruce Willis's daughter, is, like, under the sheets, and Bruce Willis storms in, doesn't see her, already seems to have a problem with Ben Affleck. Then he sees Liv Tyler, his daughter, in bed, and the problem is he already doesn't like this guy and then his adult daughter is having a consensual relationship with this man then he takes a gun and shoots him all over the oil rig and this is supposed to be funny and we're supposed to like bruce willis because he's literally trying to murder ben affleck or blow his own oil rig up yeah i'm just like (laughs) am i like this would be maybe okay in like an over-the-top comedy, but, like, this is supposed to be have some sort of realism to it. And I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> 
Yeah, I didn't like that part either. Like, they were going for comedy, I guess. And so this movie is obviously playing to a certain common denominator, which is low. (laughs) 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 It's weird how, like, it is so hard not to view this movie through a political lens right now, whereas a lot of it is the movie asking for that because it is very patriotic or at least faux patriotic. But just, like, seeing the glorification of blue-collar workers and, like, how government is at a loss. Like, they can't save anyone without these, like, mm-hmm. nine guys or something. Basically, they don't have any, like, real special skills. They're good oil drillers, and that's great, but it's, like, that's just a job, you know? They haven't, like, trained for years and, like, done anything special to become, like, experts in anything. They're just, like, guys who show up for their jobs and work and, you know, kind of live, like, roughneck lives. It really glorifies the blue-collar white man into a hero it's it's very like wishful filly looking at it now is it just it's really hard not to see it it also glorifies specifically people who are ignorant of politics and people who are not in politics and people who don't trust the government because like there's also a lot of elitism shown by the people who are in the government whether that's the scientists or the military there is a general who's like in charge of the military's response and he refers to the team as quote-unquote a bunch of retards i wouldn't trust with a potato gun which is just fucking trash and it's very typical of movies of the time but again it's just shitty dialogue to begin with but also just kind of repulsive yeah there's a laugh line where one of the demands of the team is that they don't want to pay taxes again ever ever um bear would like to stay at the white horse white house white house White House. Yeah, he'd like to stay in the Lincoln bedroom of the White House for the summer. Stuff like that. Sure, I think we can uh, take care of some of that. Harry. Yeah, one more thing. Um, None of them want to pay taxes again. Ever. That's maybe the only line that I found amusing. Was, yeah. was their run of like, here are their demands. Yeah, like their unpaid parking tickets. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of funny. By the way, like a lot of those were improvised, but like the actors actually wrote those down and he didn't know what he was going to be delivering. Oh, I the mean, the taxes one wasn't one of those. That's but. maybe one of the only moments that I yeah. that I thought was like funny. Genuinely entertaining. Yeah. Like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I didn't think about this film very politically as a kid, and I don't think most people really did. But just like now, with yeah. what we're going through in this country, it just like takes on a whole different look. And there is a there. I've heard criticism that's like, why didn't they teach astronauts how to dig versus teaching oil drillers <laughs> how to be astronauts? It's because the movie is about the underdog, every man becoming a hero, not mm-hmm. people that trained for years and years to go into space doing that. Yeah, it really ridicules kind of people who are actually experts in their field. And yeah, it ridicules the idea of expertise and knowledge. <laughs> like There's a scene in this movie where the Russian cosmonaut shoves a woman who actually who's an astronaut and actually knows what she's doing out of the way to bang on the machinery with a pipe, and that's what works. Like, mm-hmm. that's kind of the attitude of this movie. It feels like this was kind of the ringing of the bell. And Ben Affleck actually is the one who questioned why they would send oil mm-hmm. drillers up into space and not just train the astronauts how to drill for oil and Michael Bay told him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what you were mentioning was like a good segue to like just how misogynistic this film is. It really bothers me that there are no women on this team. The only woman in this movie is Liv Tyler. There's one woman on the team. She's, she's a pilot. But she's not one of the dudes right, that right, gets right. in the montage of She's people. one of the astronauts that, like, is there the whole time, but she doesn't have a lot to do in the No, story. she doesn't. And I mean, like, even, like, in the team of the oil drillers. Granted, maybe in real life there aren't that many, but I'm sure there's maybe a few, and you could have made one into a woman. And the only woman in this movie that really has anything to do but not really anything is Liv Tyler. And she is infantilized by her dad. That was exactly the word that I was going to... Yeah. Um, she is only there to be a thing to miss or to mourn the loss of whoever's going to die up there. Or to lust, or to be lusted after. Yeah, like, it is so offensive to me. The only women really are Liv Tyler, a nameless abandoned wife, Mm -hmm. and strippers. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I don't know how bad this was back in 1998, but watching it now just seems so offensive. Absolutely nothing for any woman to do at all. Liv Tyler literally barely has any character at all. I agree. She's very much the damsel in distress. Like, she's literally sitting by a TV waiting for both her dad and her lover to save her life. There could have been a fucking Vasquez, you know? Yeah. Like, from Aliens. Liv Tyler could have been the Vasquez. I think part of what's so gross about it is that this also carries the kind of right-wing version of misogyny that is very inherently sexualized because it's so tied into patriarchy and also so tied into the fear of sex in, like, Judeo-Christian religion. And that's so much of where the right-wing impulse comes from. In this movie, you get, like, really bright, creepy lines drawn in that way. There are shots that directly establish and transpose Ben Affleck's character with her dad, Bruce Willis's character. And then, like, in the Aerosmith music video for Don't Want to Miss a Thing, like, that's even more obvious. But, like, literally, Michael Bay made shots in this movie where you're kind of meant to mentally connect the role of Ben Affleck mm-hmm. as her lover with, like, the role of Bruce Willis as her father. Like the and, like, man in her life. Yes, and, like, passing the torch between the two of them of, like, Ben Affleck becoming the new man in her life. Like, it's yeah. so gross, but so surprisingly explicit the degree to which the women in this movie exist only to the degree that men need them. Yeah, that's completely true. I mean, I had a lot of notes about that, too. (laughs) There are some weird daddy issue things going on with this movie. (laughs) First of all, I mean, she is, like, I guess, spunky and will, like, talk back to him. And in that way, I think that was, like, the version of being a feminist in 1998 in a Michael Bay movie. (laughs) But see, that's, like, a 19... 70s 1980s right vision of like a cool chick like a chick who can hang you know yeah uh yes <laughs> not arguing yeah. i like this stuff with her like i think she does a really good job with this character as little as there is there and as weak as it is as a representation of all women because she's basically all that we get the movie manipulates me in the right ways where I kind of, like, enjoy, like, her crying over, like, the image of him on the TV. Like, God. that does <laughs> kind of move me in a way, even though, again, Did you cry this time? We'll get there. <laughs> I mean, not only does this movie have that storyline, which is already borderline kind of creepy. Like, he's too involved in her love life. Like, he kind of, like, yeah. stumbles upon the moment when he's, like, proposing to her and they're making out in a jet engine or something or a space shuttle engine. Engine. Not only that, 
But then I believe it's the infamous animal cracker scene that is set to I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, which is sung by her actual dad. Yeah. So not only is it creepy with Bruce Willis as her fictional dad, but then you mentioned the music video. The music video is Steven Tyler on the screens where she's like Mm -hmm. touching them and like crying. And it's even weirder because you don't have any context. Like, is he going into space? I don't know. (laughs) Like... I just think about it and I'm like, you know what I would never want is my dad singing my love theme, <laughs> like an iconic love theme that yeah. is going to like follow me around forever. Like, it's just weird. And she was 19 when she did this what? movie. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, so. Not that I thought she looked old, but I thought she was like 22 or something. Yeah. Like, there's a line at the end of this movie where, spoiler, Ben Affleck is going to like sacrifice himself and then Bruce Willis switches spots. And he's like, your job now is to take care of my little girl. And I literally screamed on my TV, your little girl is an adult woman who can take care of herself. (laughs) Seriously? Like, ew. Just ew for everything that has to do with this character in this movie. Yeah, I want to touch briefly on how Aerosmith is basically another character in this movie. (laughs) Oh, Um, yeah, there's more than that There are at least four or five Aerosmith. There are at least four or five Aerosmith songs in this movie. The first one, I believe, comes in at 40 minutes, and that's Sweet Emotion. They were pretty big at this point or did they become big after this hit, the song became the hit? Oh, no. This was a revival for them. Though. This was like a second revival for them. Right. They had been huge huge in the like late late yeah. 70s very early 80s. They came back again in the late 80s. Both like Alicia was- Silverstone music videos like that whole yes, thing. Yes, yes, that era and then in the late 90s, they came back yet again, really pretty much because of this movie and, like, they had an album around that It was time. because of this movie. I, I think very much so. I just have to tell you that when the fucking Animal Cracker scene came on, my husband was, like, had just come home and he just started screaming. He's like, I can't be here when this song is playing. I wanted to avoid this song. Yeah, so and that- then he left. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't seen him since. No, I haven't. He has to come home. Honey, come home. It's off the TV. Come on, buddy. She played. No, it's she- still on. <laughs> she pressed stop. Chris is lying. Don't listen to him. But I feel like that song, people tie it so much to this movie. And it like that scene in particular is really cringy. It's so weird and cringy. So that's at the 51 minute mark. And then by my math, no more than four minutes later at 55 minutes, there is yet another Aerosmith (laughs) song that begins. Like, it really is just, they should have gotten composer credit on this movie. Do you think they improvised the Animal Cracker dialogue that he says? Because I can't imagine someone writing that down. They did not, but they wrote it (laughs) the day of, or like the night before. There was a specific, like, writer brought in to do those (laughs) kinds of scenes, because Liv Tyler, her character was even worse, apparently, before. And because Titanic was such a hit, they wanted to beef up the love story in this movie. The Ben Affleck character, AJ Frost, (laughs) (laughs) why is it so funny oh god damn (laughs) Michael Benjamin (laughs) Bass he was not really meant to be a big part of the story and then they beefed that role up because young romance in a disaster setting was obviously like a hot new thing It's funny that that was influenced by Titanic because the opening theme of this movie is very much the Titanic song, just slightly tweaked a little bit, the knockoff version of the Titanic theme. I think the score to this movie is beautiful. I really like it. (laughs) I insist that we cut some of it in right here. (laughs) 
Armageddon. <laughs> I, I, I honestly can't remember the music. I don't know. Well, you will because you just heard it in the recorded version of this podcast. So I'll say some nice things about this movie uh, <laughs> that I think, like, from a design standpoint, it's much better than Deep Impact. Like, the asteroid itself, like, looks kind of imposing and is kind of... Like, it's not a very realistic design, but it is, it's like a much more menacing place or thing, depending on whether people are on it or not, I guess. I definitely think the sound design's better, too. So it was... That at least was a little bit more immersive, I think. And certainly, I think the advan- the effects were more advanced than Deep Impact. But again, the lack of real fleshed-out characters kind of kept it from... I don't want to say Deep Impact again. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this movie should have been three minutes long, and it should have been the way that Seth first encountered it, was was testing out TVs, sound system, and uh, visual quality. Yeah, like, honestly, (laughs) I'm feeling like that home theater Epcot experience (laughs) was probably the purest way to see this movie, and, and in the best length. This movie also made me appreciate Michael Bay's, like, attention to detail. And this movie has $19 billion worth of equipment in the movie. Obviously, they didn't pay for all of that. The fighter jets, and they actually, like, went to NASA and had Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck train as astronauts, partially in the scene where they're, like, training underwater. Like, Why did you know, they just train astronauts to be actors? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But they actually, like, did all that stuff. And I feel like this movie has an interesting look in to NASA and that kind of like the hardware of space travel that I found like pretty engaging because I like that sort of thing. They shot the scene where they're taking off in a space shuttle during an actual space launch and like briefly like just put the characters up on the ramp like right before the space shuttle took off. So as bad of a director as he is in ways or he's very meticulous about those kinds of details and getting like the authenticity and of getting like the size and scope of things right. And that like I did kind of feel from this movie everything felt much more tactile than Deep Impact. Oh God, I I do not agree with that at all. Like I don't, I don't think anything felt tactile again because i didn't believe that there were any actual human beings interacting with all that stuff i've really liked other michael bay movies and been very entertained by them in that sense of like the big dumb spectacle kinds of movies but this i just i just don't think it really connects at all chris you seem to be very forgiving of like cheesy blockbuster popcorn movies do you feel that that you are or do you like in your past it seems like you saw these movies but like do you still like that kind of movie i don't think you're the type of person that goes out and sees like rampage (laughs) yeah that's the thing i don't expect you knowing your taste now to still be entertained by something like this it's interesting that you bring that up because i had kind of a point about that, which was that this feels like the birth of the actual modern blockbuster. I mean, you can point to a lot of movies from the 90s. We talked about Twister, because that was one of the first computer-driven effects movies. Independence Day, because that was one of the first big, like, destroying a city scenes. But, like, the way that this is filmed in that kind of, like, jerky, constantly moving, really loud style is like, how I feel about a lot of blockbusters that come out now that I'm not interested in seeing. Like, I saw one of the Transformers movies and cannot watch anymore, even though I loved Transformers when I was a kid. Like, those are just, like, literally just metal 
banging around. I find them like physically unwatchable. Like the, yeah. the shots are so terribly composed and like they're all such close in shots. Like it literally is physically disorienting. I could only watch the first one myself because I, I cannot, I literally can't watch them. <laughs> And this just feels so emblematic of what big blockbusters became, these like kind of global movies with lots of CGI effects and very little emphasis on like human drama. In fact, I actually think that this movie has more of that than most movies, and I think that's why I enjoy it. As I actually got into the characters more with this movie than Deep Impact, you know, I just I found them mm. more believable and more relatable and just like the way it was shot was a more emotionally moving even though i think it's why do you think that is i just like i have no idea how you feel that way (laughs) people are affected by different things and for me like some combination of like the music which i find really beautiful and like very beautiful shots of american stuff even though it's again like really on the nose stirred up something in me where the girl grabbing the baby and deep impact Mm -hmm. stirred up something in you like neither of them is inherently a great film (laughs) but it's just like you get grabbed by the weirdest things i did cry again when the little boy (laughs) ran out to see his dad i was like i knew the moment was coming i remembered like that story and i was like i wonder if this will make me cry again i had no emotion and then as soon as that image came out like face stings a little bit the waterworks yeah and it's just it's this weird like physical response that i have to (laughs) that music that image in particular so chris like in talking only in the present tense like do you feel emotionally responsive or resonate like do you emotionally resonate with a lot of father-son kinds of stories and movies now no i don't think so that's a very like spielberg thing and definitely in deep impact like i think the daughter and her parents divorce story is very much like vestige probably of when he was going to direct that movie and i think that that's something that he would have done a lot better than was done in the actual movie and this again there's just something about the like look on the little boy's face and the way it's shot with him being so excited to see his dad and like knowing that the dad like this means so much to the dad like that actual character uh played by Will Patton. I think his previous scenes like with the wife are actually some of the better dramatic scenes in this movie too. Even though like I find the romance between Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck to be pretty over the top and not have a lot of real genuine connection between them. I do connect enough to this one character and that one storyline that I think it just carries me through the whole movie and I like (laughs) I go on that emotional journey and still feel a payoff for this kind of third or fourth tier character. (laughs) Which I don't know. It's it's it just like for some reason works but you aren't really someone nowadays that goes and sees these types of movies like you don't even really see marvel movies which kind of feel like you know disaster movies with mm-hmm. lots of explosions mm-hmm. and stuff right so i think that this these movies destroyed disaster movies <laughs> uh, as i know them and like them uh twister and dante's peak i would say especially are very focused on like small areas like towns or like small communities like a few characters and you really see like them interacting with the disaster like and how it affects them it's small scale and they find a way to make those big scale things intimate yeah which is why i like dante's peak so much volcano i think kind of falls between where it 
kind of tries to do that, but it also is getting a little bit more into effects. And then these movies are just on such a larger scale. And so from here, disaster movies went on to basically always be about the destruction of the entire world. There's uh, The Day After Tomorrow, which was about climate change, like, affecting the whole world. 2012. 2012, which, yeah, again, like, masses of CG people, like, falling into the earth. San Andreas... Geostorm. <laughs> and so on. <laughs> and the like. Etc. <laughs> I the last one I saw was 2012, which I only saw in video because I was like mildly curious. But like, yeah, I, I saw it on video too. It's just yeah. Yeah. These movies are just like they have no sense of like what would actually happen and like how people would actually react. Like I actually do think that Armageddon has again, it's like a phobe gravity, but it's a gravity where there's at least some sense that people are upset about this, which I don't even think really Deep Impact had for the most part. People were acting very normally and strange. Only Vanessa Redgrave <laughs> seemed very upset about it. And yeah, like even though like the president in this movie is like very Michael Bay president. In fact, it's the same president from The Rock. (laughs) And it has the exact same moment where he does voiceover over, like, images of helicopters and all this. It's really cheesy, but I don't know. There's something that works about it for me enough. I don't hold this up as a great film or even a good film, but I was entertained. I was invested enough. So Chris is going to go join the army. (laughs) Yeah, Chris is announcing that he's becoming a Republican today. He wants to help make space great again. Hey, at least it's not just about asteroids hitting the Beverly Center. (laughs) (laughs) And we can all be thankful for that. Armageddon was nominated for four Oscars. What? Best Song, which I think that was a big single. Best Sound and Sound Effects, which it lost to Saving Private Ryan, and Best Visual Effects. And Deep Impact was nominated for zero, by the way. As a closing thing, I just wanted to say that I found it interesting that Both of these movies are about nuclear weapons saving everyone's lives. That's really unusual. I mean, I think the 90s was when nuclear weapons became just kind of a generic plot device for the most part, but you still don't often see, like, positive stories about nuclear weapons, and I thought that that was, like, a very just unusual thing to see in a movie. Well, and especially not in the context of U.S. and Russia relations, you know, because so much of the Cold War mentality was just specifically that U.S.-Russia opposition. Um, And it's interesting how, like, there are uh, good relations between the U.S. and Russia in both of these and collaboration, and specifically collaboration in terms of nuclear technology. And yeah, it's kind of interesting because the 90s was a time where the U.S. and Russia were really starting to work together a lot to get rid of the supply of loose nuclear material around the world and to reduce the nuclear weapons stockpile. So that is interesting how that's kind of reflected in the culture in a way. Yeah, I actually, like just kind of thought of this now, but it does feel like these movies are a metaphor for nuclear war because major cities are destroyed, probably even more than they would be if it was an actual asteroid because that would be randomly hitting like most likely like the ocean or something. But this is like, it's always targeted in like very famous cities. And that I think that that's like the fear that this these movies are really about what could happen in a nuclear war. And they just kind of externalize it in this fun way. But it's weird that then the nuclear weapons become the hero of the movie instead of what the movie's really about is like being afraid that they're destructive. Well, and that's also an especially kind of thematically ironic 
thing, given that America is the only country in history to ever have dropped nuclear weapons. And I think there's very much a part of that, much like it's a part of our war movies that wants to see America always as the hero and always as the good guy. Um, And I definitely think these movies have kind of ideologically different approaches to that. But ultimately, I think they both settle on really wanting to establish and shore up America as being good and moral. Yeah. And just as a recommendation for a more recent disaster movie that I think does really work and have like intimate human drama is the impossible. Like I would recommend that one and not Geostorm. (laughs) I cried a lot at the impossible too. (laughs) Good. Well, if it makes Becky cry, then (laughs) we're all for it. And of course, also the aforementioned Children of Men, I think is a fantastic movie. Don't see either of these movies. Go see Children (laughs) of Men. So out of the asteroid movies versus the volcano movies, which pairing did you like more? Twister. Twister. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not what that's you asked, but that's the answer. That's absolutely my answer. <laughs> uh, again, I, and I can say now in the fullness of having seen all five of these movies, Twister is the only one on any Earth or alternate universe that I would recommend people watch. I think it's the only of these disaster movies that not just worked at the time, but that holds up. And you would say Twister, then Deep Impact. Yeah, catch Deep Impact on cable, but go rent Twister and watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I say Twister and Dante's Peak. Third Armageddon. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Chris. And that's all the ranking of explosions we have time for on this episode of the When We Were Young podcast. On our next episode... We'll be spending Christmas Eve at Nakatomi Plaza because nothing says the holidays like German terrorists. It's diehard, motherfuckers. Yippee-ki-yay! The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this audiophonic experience, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Tell us all of your thoughts about the show by reviewing us on iTunes and giving us five stars or more. And reach out to us on all the major social media networks to suggest future episodes. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. And I'm Chris. (laughs) Don't want to miss a thing. All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. So kiss me and smile for me. Let me know you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know I'll be back again. Leaving on a jet plane. (laughs) I don't know when I'll be back again. Leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. So, Truman, this is who you found to save the planet. (laughs) 